0: Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories where we explore the idea that truth can be stranger than fiction. This week's episode is entitled Renaissance Man. Just a note. This story is about events that transpired during the construction of the Renaissance Hotel in Times Square in 1992, and in no way references or reflects the current owners, staff, management, or anyone else affiliated with the hotel since that time. Renaissance Man I've been contacted by a high-end interior design firm called Romano & Associates with an offer to do a series of Atlas-like muscle men in an Art Deco style that will appear to be holding up the ceiling of the lobby of the Renaissance Hotel in Times Square. I'm an odd choice for the job because I rarely do freestanding figurative sculptures, but I'm so broke that I reluctantly agree to do a proposal for the project. When my proposal is accepted and they send me a big fat check, I try to get into the spirit of things. Shifting into problem solving mode, I start visiting bodybuilding gyms to find a very tall weightlifter so that I can simply take a mold from his body and circumvent the whole process of carving an original clay figure. Great idea, but to paraphrase H.L. Mencken, for every problem, there's a solution simple, elegant, and wrong. There are no tall muscle men to be found. Most of them, are medium height or smaller, and I suspect that building their body is a way of compensating for some of their feelings of inadequacy. At 6'2", Arnold Schwarzenegger was an exception to the rule. So work begins in earnest in a new direction, with my hiring a medium-sized muscle man to pose kneeling atop a six-foot-tall pedestal with his arms raised as if he were holding up the ceiling of the lobby. In reality, He's holding up a flat, lightweight foam core semicircle. After taking photographs from every possible angle, I'm now ready to visit local art schools, looking for an eager young student who works in clay and is an excellent figurative sculptor. Mission accomplished. I find a young Italian student who is gung-ho over the project and the hourly wage that I'm offering him. He is set up in one corner of my studio and helps me bring in the first 250 pounds of moist clay. We both work on the armature for the figure that the clay will be applied to, and soon he begins carving. He's both fast and good, and the work begins to take shape quickly, but he's also a bit arrogant about taking direction from anyone, especially me. When I schedule a time for the interior designer to view the finished figure, my young assistant says to me, I really want to be there when he visits. I want to see how you deal with him. I respond, as far as Romano is concerned, I'm doing the carving, and I want to keep it that way. But I promise not to say a word. I'll just observe in silence. I acquiesce. Romano shows up, and while we discuss the position of the loincloth and the Art Deco shoulder and arm configuration. My assistant pipes up with, well, what I had in mind was based on how Tamara de Lempicka handled the musculature of the male nude in some of her paintings. Luckily, Romano could care less who carved the figure, but the kid has completely broken his promise and betrayed me, so I fire him immediately after the interior designer leaves. The molds of the clay figure will now be made by another eager young artist, hopefully one who is true to their word. After the usual travails, my mold is finally ready for casting, and I head out for a mannequin factory north of Boston. The smell of polyester resin is overwhelming and nauseating upon entering, but the cavernous space is fascinating visually. In one section, there are the usual featureless female nude mannequins standing on tiptoes, missing their nipples and genitals. Nearby is what appears to be a mob of nude Santas, also sans genitalia. Reindeer, giraffes, lions, dinosaurs, and horses gather here and there, making for a veritable Noah's Ark. My four identical deco muscle men look out of place, but the artisans do a masterful job casting and painting the figures. The first coat of very reflective silver paint looks painfully tacky, but after a wash of thinned black paint, which is artfully wiped away from the high spots and into the crevices, the pieces look great. I'm surprised to find myself actually proud of them. The 25-story Renaissance Hotel is being constructed at a point created by the juncture of Broadway and 7th Avenue at the north end of Times Square. The narrow vertical facade that faces the square will become the home of a tall stack of electronic billboards, in keeping with the rest of Times Square. This strip of windows just below the ads will have a commanding view of the whole square, and a table there on New Year's Eve will probably cost thousands of dollars. I have driven my precious Deco Cargo in a rental truck from Massachusetts to the 45th Street garage door of the building. The contractor provides a group of workers with dollies to wheel my moving blanket-wrapped figures upstairs to the second-floor lobby. Each figure is carefully unwrapped on the floor underneath the niche above the elevator where it will be installed. As I stand looking at one of the silver figures, which even in its crouched position is still five feet tall, and then cast my eyes up to the niche above, I am freaked out that there's been some terrible mistake. They will never fit into the niches. At that moment, the construction manager for the general contractor comes beside me and points upwards, saying, there's no way these figures are going to fit into those niches. I'm taken aback, but respond gamely, $100 says they will, and I shake his hand, thinking to myself, this is now going to be a double disaster. We both make small talk while waiting for the scaffolding to be rolled into place so that four men can hoist up the first figure, which is much lighter than it looks. I hold my breath while they slowly slide it into place. Then, pump my fist and yell, yes, because there's a quarter inch to spare at the top. The construction manager turns and walks away, and I call out, hey, how about my money? He exits the lobby, and next time I see him, he has no memory whatsoever of our bet. That was just the first of my problems. As I help with the installation, a couple of burly workers with teamster patches on their overalls ask me, so let's see a union card. I respond, I don't need a union card, I'd like to see you create something like these as I gesture upwards. Listen, buddy, he says, poking me solidly with his index finger in the middle of my chest. Good luck leaving the building in your truck tonight. Now I have to find the manager and ask what I should do. He's as pissed off as I am and suggests you can leave your truck in the garage overnight and exit the building after quitting time through one of the side entrances. A change of clothes might help as well. Luckily, my suitcase is in the cab of my truck. The unions continue to make trouble for the general contractor. At one point, the CCTV cameras are mysteriously turned off, and someone carves a big X into the middle of each mahogany panel in the lobby. Also, the electrical contractor pulls a move that I understand is fairly common in skyscraper construction. The contractor demands his final payment sooner than expected, and if it isn't forthcoming, he simply turns off the building, having installed a remotely controlled master switch on the main line hidden somewhere inside one of the walls of the building. Once the payment is made, the electricity comes back on again. As the hotel nears completion, Romano orders a bunch of bronze and stainless lighting sconces and a semi-draped deco-female figure for the bar area. I do sketches for the figure, which are approved by Romano. She is in a reclining position with her torso upright and her legs extended out in front of her, bent up at the knee. There is a drapery covering her right breast and genital area. The nipple of her left breast is fully exposed. Some weeks after my work at the hotel is complete and my final check has not yet been received, I get a call from the interior designer telling me that he wants me to remake the female figure in the bar because of the quote-unquote lewd nature of her visible nipple. If I don't, I will not receive my final payment. The reference to the lewd nature of the visible nipple is absurd since this is, after all, Times Square in 1992, where peep show ads, porno movie billboards, and strip show marquees can be seen from the hotel lobby windows. My final work for the hotel is to show up with my high-speed grinder, and before the construction site security staff can stop me, I grind off the nipple, creating a small cloud of dust which drifts across the lobby. Done and done. Epilogue. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus is credited with the idea that the only constant in life is change. In the early 2000s, I receive a call from someone claiming to be calling from a new interior designer employed by the Renaissance Hotel. He's renovating the lobby interior and wants me to buy back the male and female figures. My guess is that he plans on making some money under the table by selling me the figures. When asked what I would offer to pay for them, I say, $200 for the lot. Then I wait for a second and continue, which includes delivery to my studio. Caller is outraged. What? It cost over a quarter of a million dollars. I hang up the phone smiling because I know that this will definitely be the last time I will ever hear from an interior designer for the hotel again. Ready to tell your own story on The Compulsive Storyteller? We're launching a new segment of guest storytelling, and we want to hear your stories. Email a voice recording to hello at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. I'll play selected stories on upcoming episodes. Try to be as clear as possible in your recording, and we reserve the right to lightly edit them for length and clarity. Leave your name or contact information in your voicemail or email, and let us know if you'd like the story to be anonymous. I can't wait to hear from you. The compulsive storyteller is now co-produced by Greg Lefebvre and Fadia Monsarath, who's also arranged the music and created the special effects. Emily Ramon does design, research, editing, and marketing. Peter Kokoma has made our theme music and for many seasons co-produced the show with me. If you enjoyed this week's episode, let us know. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Compulsive Storyteller, and we'd love to hear from you. This podcast is independently produced, so we really appreciate all your help and support. Share the show with your friends, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. You can also check out our website, thecompulsivestoryteller.com, for more information. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. All characters and events portrayed in this podcast are based on my truth, with some names and facts changed for privacy. The conversations and dialogues are based on my best memory, but are not word-for-word recreations.